0: No more to sob ko I to I had to sama some buddha saw no more Quite often, um, I'm asked the question, and probably the other monks and senior teaching nuns in the community also asked, "What, are the, what is the difference between living and practising as a monk or a nun, and living as a householder?" And that's a fair enough question. Is, uh, Obviously, we all have limited time and energy and we want to make the most of it. Certainly for young people who are still uh, looking at the options and seeing what direction they might like to go in their life, a particularly relevant question. But wherever we're at in life, uh, to recognise what's really important in practice is what matters it's not, you know, whether we're living as a renunciate or living as a householder you know, are we is our practice balanced hmm. it's easy to go out of balance and easy to get distracted easy to lose the edge and, and we've all obviously at some stage or other been inspired and enthused about the possibility of practice, spiritual life. How do we how do we keep the edge? How do we um, keep our spiritual practice alive? Whatever our lifestyle as a, as I said, as a householder or as a renunciate. And there are certain there are certain elements of practice which which it's skillful, it's useful to really focus on. And I thought this evening I could say something about some of these. I'm sure there's much more than, than I would speak about, but just to highlight a few of these points. And, and in my mind, these days anyway, there's, there's particularly there's four elements of practice that come to my mind as, as really essential and, and worth paying attention to. There's interest, really, really being interested in what's beyond the way things appear to be, not just settling for our conditioned perception of things. Is kindness yeah. Yeah. kindness is essential. We don't get very far in practice without kindness. Self respect is essential, and and the fourth one, which perhaps um, I could focus on this evening, is intensity. Uh, if there's no interest, well, then we don't even get started in practice. Yeah. If we're comfortable with the status quo, with whatever we've been taught to believe or set for, well, then we just coast through life trying to gratify desires and hoping we're going to be relatively successful and, and not have too much disappointment. But uh, if you're successful at that, well, that's a great pity, really, because there's much more to life than that. And for most of us, at some stage, you rather... Whether we recognise it or not, there is a, we do get a wake-up call. Say actually, you know this way the way life appears to be is possibly not all there is to it. You know, like for the Buddha, it was that story which we're all familiar with when he was 29 and and had uh, been led a rather protected life and and uh, surrounded by lots of nice things and and uh, kept comfortable and everything was convenient and. And, but uh, one way or another, at the age of 29, kapow he's old age, sickness, and death in front of him. And for the first time in his life, he really saw these things and he fell into despair. It was a wake up call. So isn't there anything else? Isn't there anything beyond this? And, and so, at some stage or other in life, this happens to all of us. Probably at some stage in our teens or thereabouts, we have our first experience of falling in love. And that's, that's a big shock. That's a kapow. Wow, what's this? You can't stop thinking about this person. And it's amazing and it's incredible. It's ultimate. It's always going to be this way. And however long you stay in that state of intoxication, pretty well everybody, after a while you sober up and, and you realise, well, that didn't last, did it? And if you're smart, you think, well, what was that about? Now, if you're not very smart, well, you just look for another intoxication, and you you spend your life just falling in and out of love, and don't get the message. Similarly, it can happen when um, when we come across our first experience with death. Somebody that you're close to, somebody you know and known for a long time, and there's this presence here this person you love them you hate them you like them dislike them and then suddenly one day uh, expected or unexpected there's this thing called death happens and kapow wow it's gone this this presence is gone so what's it all about you know what what is what is real what is actual and so there's there's the apparent reality, which is the world that, that most of us live in most of the time. But for awakened beings, they live in a state of, of perception of actuality, unobstructed realisation of the way things actually are, moment to moment. And accordingly, they don't suffer. For us, well, we keep falling for the way things appear to be. I mean, if something's likeable, that's good. If something's dislikable, it's bad. And our preferences determine our experience of life our conditioned preferences and so we're picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like and it's very energy extravagant very tiring and ultimately unsatisfactory so the spiritual disciplines uh talk about that which is beyond the way things appear to be and if something triggers our interest in this well that's a gift yeah, maybe things are not like that at all. Maybe there's something to learn. There's something really profoundly different worth making effort to realise. And so there's interest, there's enthusiasm. Interest has got that. It's got an energy to it. It's got an, a newness to it. It's got an liveness to it. Mm. Somebody wrote an email to me today, or was it yesterday? And it was yesterday. And They're uh, an amateur archaeologist and they've been doing a dig not far north of here, a, uh, a coastal site, the uh, coastal erosion, is uh, threatening this site, and apparently it's a very rare site, it's the only place in England, it's collaborated in in Scotland, apparently about this, uh, 8,000 years ago, uh, a tsunami came over from Norway, it was, uh, I think it's called Storaga Slide, or something like that, This this massive tsunami came over, and, Britain separated from mainland Europe and and there's still remnants of the tsunami along the coast and and I'm reading this, and I go, this is this is interesting, this is fascinating. So oh yeah, that's that's the energy of interest where we're drawn. We're drawn to find out more. Well in this case, maybe kind of do a little Wikipedia and find out the Storaga slide. And what about getting interested? What about getting interested in that which is beyond the way things appear to be? If we can keep this interest alive, well then there's less chance we're going to get fooled by the way things appear to be. Like, you know, like with our moods, You know, we get into a good mood, everything is just fine and we get all positive, enthusiastic. Well, if we're interested in that which is beyond the way things appear to be, maybe there's a little... Well, yeah, it feels like this, but we don't get lost in it. And equally, when something, the opposite comes along, something really unattractive, uh, really disappointment and disillusionment, despair comes along. Well, yeah, it really feels like this, but if there's this interest in that which is beyond the way things appear to be, maybe there's a better chance we won't get totally lost in this mood. So, so interest is important, keeping it alive. And as and a saying, kindness, that without kindness there's a very real risk of getting stuck with fear and anger. Fear and anger, to some degree, all of us experience at some stage in life. And and kindness is like a a medicine. The Buddha was called the great healer. He gave the best medicine for healing the heart diseases that we have, the heart disease of ill will, of fear, of greed, of sadness, of sorrow. And if we haven't discovered the capacity for being loving, for being loving, we all know what it's like to want to be loved, and, but that strength, that potential that we have for being loving and to connect with that and to make something out of that, to cultivate that, to prepare ourselves with that, uh, then we're not properly, we're not uh, not really very well equipped. And this is the same. It doesn't matter whether you're a householder or a renunciate. And the danger for householders uh, with some of these things is like with with um, this area, with, with kindness, the the delight, the joy, the pleasure that comes with a heart of loving kindness can can be intoxicating and sometimes... You know, people just get stuck with that, a good feeling, and and perhaps don't move on to the wisdom aspects of the teaching. And, and people even create reg- religions about, about being good, about being kind, about being loving. And for those who are living the renunciate life, well then there's uh, there's the risk of, with uh, regards to loving kindness, there's a risk of dismissing it. You know, some Some people live the life of monks and nuns just because they're afraid of relationships. They don't want to get involved with people. They, and they, they, uh, they spiritualize avoidance of relationship and, and busy trying to understand everything, which is a, a real danger. So the uh, heart of loving kindness, being able to turn to that, being able to use that when it's needed. And then self-respect that uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before I gave a talk about building the container of self-respect that if we don't feel that we can really trust ourselves if we don't feel like we're our own really best friend then we don't actually feel safe. And and to feel safe is really important. It's essential uh, when as we proceed in the spiritual life and we encounter difficulties, whether it's old stuff that we're having to deal with or whether it's current stuff or imagined future stuff, whatever the stuff is, yeah, at some stage in spiritual adventure, we're certainly going to enc- encounter uh, very real difficulties and, and to feel safe, even when we feel threatened. Yeah, we can feel threatened, like there's... Uh, uh, traditionally in the the uh, forest monasteries in in thailand when the monks are going out on tudong in the forest and uh, great austerity and, and extreme simplicity and and sometimes uh, some serious challenges and not not um, not having companions not having medical supplies and just being out there in the jungle basically and sometimes feeling of Really feeling threatened, whether it's by wild animals or by death from sickness, Uh, monks can uh, very easily feel overwhelmed by fear. And the encouragement, when anything like that happens, is reflect on your precepts, reflect on your reflect on your intention to live harmlessly, reflect on your aspiration. To cultivate impeccability of body and speech, and just that itself, just the arising of the awareness of this good, wholesome intention, produces a sense of safety. And so, so self-respect, the container in which the transformation of our wild, unruly nature uh, is going to take place, is essential. Again, with the householder or the monastic, uh, the danger, of course, in the householder's life is that. There's so many distractions that um, one's you know, regularly tempted to compromise. You know, you know, people around us you know, regularly saying one thing and doing another, well, if that's normal, well, it's very easy to get pulled into that. And and these days, sadly, it is normal. Like the builders that come to the monastery say, yes, absolutely, I'm going to be there on such and such a day. Yes, promise, guaranteed, signed in blood, I'll be there. And if I don't come, I'm, I'll ring you up and let you know. And over and over again, they don't turn up and they don't ring and they don't let you know. And that's uh, quite unfortunately, That's the, the culture outwardly in the outer world. Well, when that's the culture inwardly, just as you, know, you have a certain relationship of distrust towards some of the builders, well, we, have, we can also unfortunately have a relationship of distrust inwardly towards ourselves if we don't do what we say we're going to do if we don't live a life of integrity. And so certainly it's worth cultivating. And the, uh, so the danger of if you live in a monastery, though, is that you've got so many rules and paying attention to being particular and precise about things you do and say that uh, there's a very real risk that you can uh, get conceited about it and, and all puffed up and overly pleased with yourself because you're, you're so pure. Or you think you're so pure. And, but with how everyone's living as a, as a household or as a renunciate, it's essential that um, that we cultivate this sense of self-respect. But then there's the matter of intensity, because even if we've we're really interested, absolutely interested, we find reality riveting. And yes, we've got a heart of loving kindness and and we love everybody and and yes, we keep precepts, got a sense of self-respect if there isn't intensity, it's not going to crystallise. You know? and, and it's not that uh, any one lifestyle or any one situation is going to bring about the intensity, but to recognise that there's a place for it. And when it's happening, to appreciate it. Uh, a friend, was uh, somebody I hadn't seen for quite some time, uh, was, was, was relating to me recently that, that how they've been very, very ill. I knew this person some years ago and, and their strong commitment to practice and this time we were talking and he was relating to me about his practice, how his practice was going and, and he was talking about how it wasn't that he went on some uh, fabulous retreat and had an amazing insight, it wasn't that he, he went to some initiation ceremony or whatever but it was he got incredibly sick and for very long periods of time would barely get off the floor or you know, off his bed he was just, there was just no energy and and he related how there wasn't even the energy to pump up the sense of self you know, he, he, he recognized that even to be somebody even to be a sex somebody even to be any sort of a somebody took energy and he didn't have it but the wonderful thing was that and not being able to pump up his self he came to recognise that which was there beyond this imagined apparent self. And it was absolutely OK. It was more than OK. It was wonderful. It didn't need to be pumped up. And the major shift, a major transformation in his practice took place as a result. It was intense. It was intensely threatening. But he benefited from it. And so it is in our life, again, as a householder or as a renunciate, that sometimes intensity comes through sickness Uh, sometimes it comes again it comes through uh, well it can come through our practices that we do uh, going on retreat uh, which is often what householders will do they feel drawn to there's something missing say well I need to go on retreat again yeah there is an element missing no lack of interest no lack of kindness no lack of self-respect keeping the precepts but there's an intensity very is missing and so and put themselves on retreat, which can be very skillful and and necessary. The um, the danger for those living the monastic life is that uh, you're living in a very pressure cooker situation the whole time. And, uh, yes, there are a lot of rules, and yes, if you're taking the rules, the training seriously, then yes, there is a lot of pressure, and there is. If you don't get it right, if you don't get it balanced, then there is a very real risk of overwhelm. For the uh, householders, uh, the, uh, the risk, of course, is underwhelm, that uh, there's no pressure. It's just there's too many out clauses, too many options. And, you know, and the pressure starts to build up, and as it's supposed to do, if your aspiration is freedom from ignorance and conceit, uh, if the aspiration is for liberation, then the pressure does need to build up. We need to break out of our habits of clinging. Uh, deluded ego has a self-sustaining habits which keep us locked into this feeling of me, this limited feeling of me that keeps coming up against this experience of I can't stand it anymore. That's exactly the point we need to get with practice, where I can't stand it anymore. If we can be present at that place, in that moment, in our body, in our hearts, in our minds, with interest, with kindness, with self-respect. If we can be there at that point and feel the experience of I can't stand this anymore and not judge it, not fall for our preferences, not take a position for or against it, but just receive it, then we might experience letting go. And if we misperceive, the function of that build-up of pressure. I feel, oh, it's all going wrong, I just can't stand it anymore. I say, absolutely. Who's imposing the limitations on awareness? Who is imposing this feeling of restricted, limited being? It's just this habit of thinking that we call me, Well, that is me. That's what me is. It's a habit of, of, of compulsively uh, limiting our experience of reality, of life, of this moment. And we're doing it over and over again. We're so familiar with it. It really feels like absolutely a solid, substantial somebody. It is. It's me. But it's not ultimate. That's the good news. And if we prepare ourselves properly, that when we come up against this experience, we're rightly prepared and really ready for it. We come across this experience. of I can't stand it anymore, then that can serve Dhamma. Instead of running away from it. And that's the danger That uh, for... For those living the householder's life, there's too many options, too many out clauses. And so we can turn on the telly or, or uh, go and do something that distracts us. So it's helpful to recognise the, uh, the place of, of intensity, to not miss the opportunity. Overwhelm is not it, of course. That's bad management. Underwhelm, that's not it. That's just being lazy. But between underwhelm and overwhelm, there's practice. And it's important that we, we test ourselves, experiment with finding that place. And, how, and that's what goes on a lot of the time in a, in, a, in a place like this, in a spiritual community, testing ourselves to see where that, that point of balance is, where we, the amount of intensity that we can take that's needed. Too much is not it. Too little is not it. There are practices that we do in the monastery that uh, sometimes people see. Well, what are they doing that for? And I completely misunderstand. Like, for instance, the the practice of one bowl eaters practice. It's called the one bowl eaters practice. Well, of course, we're not <laughs> we're not eating the bowl, but it's the you have one bowl and you eat everything out of your bowl, and um, that's the practice in this monastery for the monks who live here and the novices. And the Anagarikas, it's one of the, uh, the Tutanga practices where you just put everything you're going to eat in your bowl and people don't understand this and they think, oh, that's a bit weird, that's a bit disgusting. And, and if we don't understand the point of it, then yeah, maybe it's pointless. Yeah, but the point of it is because we want to see our preferences. It's true, I do not want my curry to run into my... Blackberry and apple pie. I don't. I don't want. But what's the problem? What's the problem with my curry and my blackberry and apple pie getting mixed up? The problem's not with the what's in the bowl, the problems with what's in my mind, my preferences. and I make a problem out of that. I do. After 38 years, I still don't like them getting mixed. And when I get a chance, I, <laughs> I don't put them involved. The but so long as in the monastery I do this practice because it's good for me. Yeah. I want to see these preferences. I want to see preferences as preferences. And that's the point. Now, it's not that we like doing this. Of course you don't like doing it. But if we, what we know is that if we don't see preferences as preferences, then we're defined by our preferences. And it says in the, the commentaries and the, the traditional scriptures, it points out that this practice, one of the direct benefits of this practice is that you're able to hear teachings from any teacher. Mm -hmm. Why would you be able to hear teachings from any teacher? Like, you know, maybe you don't like this teacher, but you like that teacher. But if you've got this practice down properly, it says the benefit is you can hear teaching from any teacher. Because we're not defined by our preferences, not defined by our liking and disliking. Most of the time, it's true for most of us, that we're defined by our liking and disliking. What we like, we think is good, and what we don't like, we think is bad, and we believe in these perceptions. And so, something like that is is aimed at putting us in touch with the consequences of our being defined by our preferences. And you know, sometimes, sometimes you get visitors to the monastery that are kind of like samadhi addicts. They've they've done a little meditation and tasted a little samadhi, and I think this is it and compared to the painful condition that they live most of their life in, then certainly it's preferable. But that's a relative type of samadhi. That's not the samadhi that comes with wisdom. And the difficulty with samadhi addicts is in the pleasant feeling that comes with a little relative samadhi they get attached to it. And so then they just keep trying to be peaceful. And sometimes you'll see this in the monastery before the meal. You get these people slouched over, bad posture, sitting there trying to be peaceful. They're not peaceful at all. They're really hungry. They've been working all morning. And they can smell the food from the kitchen. And they're sitting there and they want to eat. And they're not peaceful, but they're desperately trying to be peaceful. And they're missing the point. The point is not to try and be peaceful. The point is not to try and let go. Letting go will happen if we feel the consequences of being defined by our preferences. So we're supposed to be suffering, that's the point. Uh, But in our indulgent ways, we think that somehow because we're suffering it's an indictment against who we are. If we're not suffering, either we're in some sort of samadhi or we're seriously deluded or we're liberated. But so long as we're defined by our preferences, then there is always going to be an element of, of suffering, of dissatisfaction there. And a situation like that is because we're interested What does it feel like to really want to eat and to not be able to eat when I want to? What does it feel like to have to wait for the bell to be rung? Why can't that senior monk just ring the bell and get on with the meal? Stop talking to people and stop sitting there. Just ring the bell so we can get the food. Now, if that's what's going on in the mind, that's what's going on in the head, that means the passions have already come up and into the head and just going around and creating a storm. We've already missed the message. The message is, I want. That's the message. That's the practice. That's the training. Is I want is the teaching, not what's in the books, not what's in the Tripitaka. Is the heat, it's the fire, Is the I want to eat. Can we be with that? Or do we have to get rid of the feeling of, of resisting I want... We don't really know I want for what it is. We don't know it. If we truly knew it, there wouldn't be a problem. There wouldn't be any suffering. Liberated beings are not suffering over wanting to eat. It's wanting to eat. Fine. It's just so. Wanting is just so. But for us, because we don't really know wanting, we don't really know desire, we're resisting it or we're indulging in it, one or the other. We don't know the middle way. We don't know how to really be with it as it is actually. All we see is the apparent nature of desire. Gratify it or deny it. Mm. Deny it or indulge in it. Mm. The two options. So putting ourselves in this position of not gratifying our desires is an opportunity to see preferences for what they are. There's a point to it. Mm. That's a very important practice for helping to generate uh, Intensity. Well, the um, opportunities we have in the practice, whether it's in a monastery or in daily life, they're constant. And if, we, if we're heedless, if we're not careful about it, well then there is a risk that we can get too ambitious and, and take on too much, and then that's when we suffer from overwhelm. But if we don't take on anything, well then there's a risk that we suffer from underwhelm. I was um, hearing recently that... Uh, We've had a lot of guests staying with us um, down at Koosler House in our guest accommodation and, and there's been a lot of compulsive comparing going on. There's not been a mindful noticing preferences in the mind, in the heart, in the body this monastery's like that, and that monastery's like this, and this teacher's like this, and that teacher's like that, and that monastery, they've got a much bigger forest than this monastery, and at that monastery, they ring the bell at such and such a time, why do they ring the bell at this time here in this monastery, and and that teacher there, I don't know about him, and what about that monk, and and actually, that, that kind of talk is really disappointing. I was having a conversation with Ajahn Suchito and Chitturst this morning about it, and and how the, uh, the guests that come through the monastery um, carry on about comparing and, and compulsively judging, picking and choosing, and, and we agreed how utterly unhelpful that was. But it's true that we all start off with that in our practice, and it's true that at some stage of practice there is um, picking and choosing, but it's important that we don't get stuck there that we feel the consequence of that. What is the consequence of always picking and choosing? Is it peaceful? Does it take us to ease to be caught up in our preferences? And if it doesn't, then what's the way out? Um. Last week I was talking about the verse on the calendar, some teaching by Ajahn Chah, where he was saying that when you understand that which is beyond happiness and unhappiness, then you can find peace. Only when you understand that which is beyond happiness and unhappiness or happiness and suffering can you find peace. And that's another reason why it's important that we're willing to question our preferences yeah. our preference is for having things how we want to be absolutely I want my curries here and I want my blackberry and apple pie there I do, I absolutely do that's a preference but what happens if they go together in the bowl we feel it We feel. and, and if we can feel it only when we can feel it is there a chance we're going to feel beyond it now I'm not saying that everybody should take up one bowl eater's practice but just as an example of finding how to appreciate how to appreciate uh, how to appreciate frustration and and how to appreciate dissatisfaction when we're feeling dissatisfied. Is that a sign that something's going wrong? We... Imperfection. Say, oh it's such a pity that they ring the bell at the wrong time in this monastery. Yeah. Oh, it's such a pity that the summer has changed and, and now we've got autumn. We're always going to have imperfection. This morning I was talking to one of our guests down at Kusla House about that uh, Japanese sense of aesthetics, uh, wabi-sabi, Japanese sense of aesthetics that appreciates imperfection mm-hmm. now the the deluded ego can't stand it the deluded ego wants to have things just right wants to have needs to have security needs to have satisfaction and believes that gratification of desire and satisfaction are the same thing a friend was telling me how he'd been on he'd booked himself to go on a on a retreat Looking forward to this retreat, and sat down on the retreat, and as soon as the teacher started talking, there was this thought came into his mind,, said, "Oh, this is just not what I want. This is absolutely not what I wanted to hear." But he caught himself in that moment. He had been practicing long enough rightly enough to be able to see that as a preference.. Yeah. You're here on retreat. All you're doing is sitting meditation with a bunch of good people. And then he was saying by the end of the retreat, he found, much to his surprise, he was in tears of gratitude. And the thought that arose in his mind was, this is exactly what I wanted to have. Because what he realised was what he wanted was to not have to follow his preferences. Hmm. To have to have our preferences gratified is really painful. Hmm. there's um there's a very well known sutta in the scriptures, Bahia sutta, where this uh, this truth seeker has uh, heard about the Buddha and how the Buddha is a completely enlightened arahant and and that he's got all the answers and so this truth seeker Bahia uh, seeks out the Buddha and finds him and and is desperate to know. Uh, the true teachings and even though the buddha is on arms round in the village at the time and tries to put him off this guy keeps pestering the buddha says no no i don't know how much time you've got left and how much time i've got left and and please give me the true teachings and and the buddha says a second time no no this is you know this is not the time and the guy carries on and and then the third time and so eventually you know how they do things in threes all the time in buddhism so eventually the third time this guy asked and the buddha said okay and so he stops and he, he gives Bahia this teaching. And he says, Bahia, in the seeing, let there just be the seeing. Just seeing. In the hearing, let there just be the hearing. Just hearing. In the sensing, let there just be the sensing. Just sensing. In the cognizing, let there just be the cognizing, Just so. And when for you by here, the seeing is just the seeing. When there's hearing, there's just the hearing. When there's a sensing, there's just the sensing. When there's a cognizing, there's just cognizing, Nothing extra, nothing more. When things are just so, when you see the just so nature of these things, then there's no you. And there's no suffering. And for us, well, it's not like that. We're always picking and choosing. There's a seeing and I like it, I don't like it. It's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. How, do we, how can we train ourselves so as to see the preferences that complicate life? How do we do that? How do we train our awareness so we can be with the just-so nature of things? We're always avoiding the reality of this moment. Even when it's agreeable, we attach to it and hold on to it. Even though once it's agreeable, it's going to change as it will change. You know, can we go with it? Can we accord to the change? No, if it's agreeable, we hang on to it, we want more. Uh, and we get lost in whether it's agreeable, we get lost, and whether it's disagreeable, we get lost in our preferences. Picking and choosing, compulsive judging. You know, a few weeks ago I was talking about how we we're all suffering from the from CJD, compulsive judging disorder. It's a, it's a serious problem. You know, always picking and choosing. And, and we feel, we feel, all of us, we feel desperately divided, deeply divided and deeply unpeaceful as a result. And so the Buddha's teaching, the Dhamma, is about healing that division through learning to develop a non-judgmental awareness, an awareness that's not defined by preferences, that's gone beyond the preferences. Maybe you know in your own life examples of feeling received, What is it like to be fully received just as you are without any judgment? And if we can do that for ourselves. I remember either reading or hearing a story by Carl Gustav Jung or about Carl Gustav Jung's life. Um, I'm not sure if it was in his biography Memory, Dreams and Reflections or if I heard a, a lecture but there was this, apparently the situation in, in, in Jung's life where he was seeing a client that would come all the way from America every year to see him in Switzerland. And it went on for, for 10 years, this client was coming. This, this fellow, this American fellow, was very wealthy and he wanted the best, and Dr. Jung was the best, and so he'd come all this way every year to see him. And then after, after 10 years, it's related that, that uh, Dr. Jung decided, well, I've just got to tell this guy that actually I can't help him. He's going to have to help himself. There's no point in this guy spending all this money to come and see me all the way in Switzerland here. I'm just going to tell him. And so he prepared himself, and when the guy booked his appointment, and the day came, and he came to the office, and, and Dr. Jung opened the door, and this, this patient put his hand out and shook his hand and said, Dr. Jung, I want, I've come just to say thank you. He said, I knew from the beginning that you couldn't heal me, I had to do it myself, but you were the only person who didn't reject me. You are the only person who didn't judge me. And so it can be. Not just in the outer world, but also in our inner life. Always taking sides. This is how it should be, this is how it shouldn't be. Can we get a perspective on that? Can we see that? movement of mind that preferencing for what it is the difficulty of course is that when we start to get a interest in this we start to get a feeling for this and we see preferences as preferences and then we judge them we say i shouldn't be preferencing i shouldn't be having this feeling i shouldn't be having this judgment and we've got to of course get more subtle on that so there is a way that um, i recommend people do in formal meditation with actually training awareness, training a just so awareness. That instead of instead of exercising attention to hold on to a meditation object, to let go of all meditation objects, to stop concentrating, absolutely stop concentrating, and just feel for a sense of our awareness. Mm. Just, Just to drop into the mind the suggestion of expand awareness. Open awareness. And we can imagine our awareness. Your eyes closing, imagine awareness filling your whole body, the space around your body, the room you're in, the building you're in. Imagine your awareness expanding. And then everything that arises everything that arises in this awareness we meet it with just so the itch in my shoulder is just so it's just so, it is just so we don't have to add anything to it we don't take anything away from it it's just like this it is just like this so we meet it with that just so the sound of the Airplane going overhead is just so. The yabbering in my mind, we meet it with just so. It's an exercise really worthwhile. Really, instead of trying to get rid of all the things that we ima- imagine are uh, obstructing us, to accept everything as it is, is just so. And in so doing, hopefully coming to recognise that these preferences that we suffer from are not who and what we are. But we can't let go of them as an act of will. Even trying to let go of preferences as an act of will is another preference. What's called cool for is a, a receptivity until we feel the consequences of our being defined by preferences. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention.